Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for September 22nd, 2017. On today's show, we're going to dive into the little news that there is in the movie world today. That includes a three-hour cut of Superman the Movie, uh, Jordan Peele's new TV series, and a Christmas Story live casting uh, at the water cooler. Uh, we'll talk about Murder on the Orient Express, the book, and Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party at Disneyland. And in the mailbag, we'll take another look behind the scenes at the movie blogging world and talk about set visits and what they're all about. Uh, joining me today is Slash Film writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Not much. Uh, yeah, not much at all, actually. <laughs> looking, <laughs> looking at the site today, there's so little news. I'm not sure what it is been, what has been up with this week and last. Uh, maybe it was all the film festivals that were happening and fantastic fest is gearing up gearing mm-hmm. startup tiff uh you know just ended last week and it seems like they're i mean there's a lot of trailers but not a lot of juicy substance to talk about yeah it's weird we sort of hit these stretches these little patches uh, a few times every year where there's just like not much going on and then all of a sudden we'll get like a burst of stuff to sort of make up for it so i'm sure a wave is coming soon yes but ho- hopefully we have enough to make this entertaining uh, last night, I got to go to Disneyland to Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party, and um, I'm a Disney uh, annual pass holder, so I, I go there you know, twice a month. <laughs> um, got to make uh, use of that annual pass <laughs> if you're spending you know, $700, $800 a year. <laughs> you know, you, you got to make some use out of it. Yeah. But one, one thing not included in the pass is every year they have these nighttime events where they close down Disneyland and they have a Halloween party. Um, and those used to be like, you know, $50, $60. I think now they're priced at $90. <laughs> uh, I think annual pass holders might get a discount. I forget how much we, we paid. But um, basically what it is is Disneyland shuts down at 6 p.m. and you get to go in there and they have a lot less people in Disneyland. There's uh, and you have access to most of the big rides, and so you can uh, 
get on most of the big rides in less than 20 minutes, which is a good deal if yeah. if you weren't an annual pass holder. But if you're an annual pass holder, you're there so often that that doesn't really matter. Uh, what it is really is um, – and, you know, I'm going to do this comparison for the site later this week between Universal's ha- Halloween Horror Nights, uh, Knott's Berry Farms has a Knott's Scary, fa- uh, Scary Farms. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Mickey's not so scary Halloween party, and compare them. Um, and all these theme parks have kind of like made these. I think it's turned into like a month and a half now of you know n- this nighttime n- nighttime experiences. Um, and for Disney, it's a lot different than the other two. The other two are about you know these Halloween mazes where you're getting scared and these uh those kind of experiences in Disney. It's more about uh, normally at Disneyland, you aren't allowed to dress up. I mean, little kids, I guess, are, but uh, adults are not allowed to wear costumes at Disneyland. It's uh, strict, uh, strictly prohibited. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the Halloween party, it's kind of like Comic Con with people, you know, lots of adults dressing up. Like we saw this whole group, maybe of like 10 people that were like the Academy of Sidekicks. And like one of them was dressed as. Um, uh aladdin's uh magic carpet another was dressed as olaf another was dressed as uh penelope von schweetz and it was like this whole group of them uh so it's kind of fun to see that and see the little kids dressed up um all around the park they're uh i'm wondering how interesting this is to hear (laughs) all around the park uh they have these uh uh, trick-or-treat stations which you go and get uh you're given uh, like this bag and you can go to these trick-or-treat stations and get tons of candy and if you were to just do that, you could probably walk out with, like, you know, five pillow bags worth of candy. But Jeez. I'm on a diet, so <laughs> that's not even <laughs> something that I could really do. I had some candy last night. but um, So why do you go, Peter? What, what's the big <sighs> attraction for you? Well, my girlfriend Kitra really loves it because of two things. Um, they have all the Disney character, well, they'll they'll have interesting Disney characters that aren't normally out and about. So some of the villains, you can take photos with some of the villains are around uh, Disneyland, mm-hmm. and also like the main characters like Mickey, Minnie, Goofy, Pluto, uh, Chip and Dale are in their like Halloween outfits, and you can get photos with them. Uh, that's something <laughs> my girlfriend is really into. Nice. Um, and also they have an exclusive parade. Uh, that is no, you know, you can't see otherwise, um, which has like segments from uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, or Nightmare on Elm Street, <laughs> Nightmare Before Christmas, <laughs> and uh, you know other th- like they have uh, the Headless Horseman um, from oh, cool. the classic short. So uh, it has stuff like that, and they have a exclusive um, fireworks show set to uh, you know music from their uh, those kind of films, the the, mm-hmm. the Halloween films of the Disney. Uh, archive and it's fun but i'm not sure it's worth 90 dollars um, yeah but they sell it out every night um you know it's a big thing and they're doing it now they're starting you know last night was the first night and that was september 20th and you know they're doing it for over a month and yeah. <laughs> it's packed so there's no incentive oh I, I should also be said that they have like some atmosphere so they have some cool like fog going through main street and different areas and lighting effects and it, it, it's kind of a and the uh, rivers of America, like there's, you know, fog is filling the rivers, and there's like uh, 
the Dapper Dans are on a raft singing like Halloween <laughs> songs, and I mean, it, it's a fun experience. But it basically you're in there from six p.m. It closes at eleven p.m. So it's not um, you're paying a lot for. Yeah, you don't uh, really get the the run of the place for that many hours in a row. Yeah. And I, I was driving from Los Angeles, which I told you online, took us uh, over two hours to get there. And uh, I didn't even get to go over to Disney California Adventure and experience uh, uh, Mission Breakout. They have a new Halloween After Dark version of that. Yeah. And also Cars Land is all decorated in Halloween. I haven't seen that yet, so we'll have to return uh, sometime in the next month to see that. Yeah. But uh, if you're interested in any of this, if you're in based out of the Los Angeles or Southern California area, watch out later this week while I will compare be comparing all three events and trying to determine definitively which is better. Yes. All right. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to reading that. So, so what have you been up to? Uh, I recently read Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express for the first time. So the, there was a movie... Um, in 1974 that has an insane cast, including Sean Connery and and a ton of really crazy people. Um, but they're doing a new, like a remake of that, I guess a re- another adaptation. Um, Kenneth Branagh is directing, and it's also, you know, sort of similarly star-studded. Uh, so in anticipation of this new movie, uh, I wanted to go back and, and read Agatha Christie's book. I've never read any of her books. I know that she's like a sort of undisputed queen of the murder mystery genre, and I hadn't read a book like a book like that in a while. But you had seen the film before this, right? You're a fan yeah, of the movie. Yeah, so that's the thing is I saw the 74 movie, but it was like 10 or 15 years ago probably, and I didn't remember what happens at the end. And in a, a whodunit sort of uh, story, that's like a perfect way to revisit it. So instead of just re-watching the movie, I was like, all right, I'm going back to the original source material. I'm just going to get this story as Agatha Christie intended originally and just sort of you know, experience it this way and then, um, you know, take that into my viewing of the new movie. So uh, I'm not going to spoil what happens in it, but it is one of the classic murder mystery uh, stories for a reason. And the ending is really fantastic. I forgot and I can't believe that I forgot how this thing ended uh, because it's so it just it seems super iconic to me in in hindsight in retrospect I never should have <laughs> ever forgotten how this thing came to a close but uh, it basically the story is about um, a detective who happens to be on a train that gets snowbound. So there's sort of, you know, a bunch of people are on this train and they're all trapped in the snow waiting for the weather to clear. And they discover that there's a dead body in the train. So nobody can go anywhere. Nobody can escape. And the detective sort of methodically goes through, um, you know, every person on the train and sort of, you know, figures out who the suspects are and, and what their motivations could be and all this stuff. So um, it's a, a really interesting book. And I think a lot of, a lot of fun to read. It's only 315 pages. The book came out in 1934 and it's been entertaining people, you know, for a long time. And it's, it's a classic for a reason. I think I, I like her writing style. She's very reliant on dialogue and doesn't really get um, caught up in flowery language or anything like that. Uh, the character, there's a ton of characters. So if you're one of those people, sometimes I'll read a book, but I'll wait, you know, a week just because I'm busy, like a week in between reading sessions and 
if you do that, it's going to be tough to remember all these characters because there's all there's a, a lot of people involved in this thing. But uh, but yeah, I'd recommend people checking it out, especially with the new movie coming up. Um, like I said, 315 pages. It's not going to take you that long to read it. Uh, and it's cool just to to get a sense of, um, you know, a classic that's been around for a long time and like one of the sort of uh, pillars of the murder mystery genre. T- tell me this. Um, you know, it's such a classic that I feel like usually with these kind of stories – when you actually do end up diving into them, uh, you kind of feel like you've seen or read them before because so many things in popular culture have either parodied or stolen from them. Right. Did, 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 do you get that sense from this or does um, it still feel original? And... I, yeah, I know that feeling very well. Um, and I did not have that feeling reading the original book. And I think it's because the ending is so unique um, and again, I'm not going to actually say what it is, but it, it, it would be tough for, um, other properties to, uh, replicate the way, the specific way that this story comes to a close. So it, it feels singular in that way. And that I think goes a long way in, in sort of, um, shrugging off, you know, even though there are, uh, plenty of um detective stories and like even things like sherlock and stuff i'm sure have sort of um the you know the modern interpretations have probably used uh, agatha christie's work as much as arthur conan doyle's work you know in sort of um building the modern takes on sherlock holmes and stuff like that in any sort of detective story really uh i think going back to this source material and reading it you don't really get the sense of like oh god i've seen this a million times before so um yeah i'd recommend checking it out for sure. Um, I usually like reading the books after I see the movies because um, not that I have the time, but when I do, uh, because I've been so disappointed uh, when I read a book and see the movie in the movie. And yeah, uh, I prefer movies as a medium more than books. So I would rather enjoy the movie and experience books as the, uh, you know, catching the deleted scenes. I guess. Right, right. Um, OK, but speaking of deleted scenes, yeah. um, Superman, the movie has a three-hour cut, an extended edition, which is now coming to home video this year. And we're not talking about the Richard Donner director's cut, which I think was two hours and something. We're talking about a three-hour cut of the movie. What do we know about this, Ben? Yeah, so in 1982, some of our older listeners might remember that uh, ABC aired a two-night television event of Superman the movie, Richard Donner's classic 1978 Superman film starring Christopher Reeve. And... uh, that um, airing was three hours long. It was like 188 minutes, which is 40 minutes more than the theatrical version. And in subsequent home video releases, there have been, like you said, sort of uh, Richard Donner has put out a definitive director's cut of his own, but it is not nearly as long as that. And it's featured, you know, a couple of these um, little bonus scenes here and there. But this is the first time that... um, Warner Archive is actually releasing this 188-minute cut of the movie that aired back in 1982. So it's a remaster, which is nice. Um, If you go to SlashFilm.com, this article that I wrote up, I actually found this guy on YouTube basically collected all of the extra scenes that made up the difference in in that running time and put it into one video and he sort of explains uh, as these scenes are going up you know how they slot into the larger experience so you can see them but because 
it aired in 1982, it's all in 4x3 aspect ratio, and it just looks like garbage. So the remaster is obviously going to be much better um, as soon as that comes out. We're not exactly sure what the date is going to be on that, but it seems like if they're going to be doing it before the end of the year, that'd be a cool Christmas present for the uh, super Superman fan in your life, the <laughs> the mega fan. Um, and yeah, this is, uh, they, you know, Superman as a property has released a ton of um, DVD releases and Blu-ray releases and stuff. There was one called uh, Superman the Anthology, I think the motion picture anthology that came out a few years ago that was basically like every Superman movie and all of the Fleischer cartoons and all of the, you know, like the TV show with George Reeves. It's just like this mega super box set. And even that did not have this uh, three-hour cut in there. So this is something special for um, people who remember that or people who are looking for um, some of this footage that hasn't really been made available in any easy, uh, easy to consume way uh, since 1982. I've never seen this, so I'm actually interested in seeing this. And it's actually interesting because back in the day, this kind of stuff was done all the time. Like there's a Godfather, a version of the Godfather trilogy, maybe, or maybe it's just the second one where it's told in chronological order, and that aired on I think HBO or some. TV network mm -hmm. that I don't think has been released on <laughs> DVD or Blu-ray. Maybe it has. I, uh, but um, I'm interested to see this. Um, did you ever see the Richard Donner cut of the sequel? Because yeah, I did. It's it's weird because it's like it's got some unfinished um, effects and stuff in there. Because there's like this whole story about how the movie was famously taken away from him because of issues that he had with the producers and all of that. Um, and yeah, I was sort of saying in this article that I wrote about this uh, extended version of Superman the movie that this extended thing and which it's also packaged, I should say, with uh, so there's that there's the three hour cut. And then there, you also get Richard Donner's definitive cut in the same uh, of the, same the first purchase. Movie. Yeah, yeah, of the first movie. So that would you know, if you watch all of that, it would be a nice lead in to the Richard Donner cut of Superman, two. If you happen to buy that when it came out back in 2006, I think is when that one was released. And it should be also noted that this comes with a an all music only track, yeah. so, which is great. I've actually seen it on the original Superman DVD, and if you if you sh you should at least at some point in your life find a movie, if not Superman the movie, and watch it just with the score and see how that experience, you know, just hearing the music changes the movie. Uh, but I did want to say like the Richard Donner cut of Superman two. I wasn't happy with. I was so excited about, and I wasn't happy with. He kind of like steals the ending of Superman one mm -hmm. to uh, to wrap it up. Um, you know, using the time travel and all that stuff. Um, yeah, uh, I would be interested in seeing Richard Donner coming come back and take this three hour cut of Superman the movie and Superman two and put them together into one massive massive epic movie. Yeah, um, because they were originally shot back to back, I think. And um, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that could be interesting. But moving on from there, uh, Jordan Peele, a master of horror and comedy, is developing a 1970s set TV series. You wrote the story for SlashFilm.com. What do we know? Yeah, he is working on a TV show called The Hunt, which is about a diverse band of Nazi hunters in 1970s America as they set out on a quest for revenge and justice, tracking and killing hundreds of Nazis who, with the unconscionable help of the U.S. government, escaped justice and embedded themselves in American society. So uh, that sounds very in line with the sort of um, socially conscious 
uh, thrillers that he is said to be working on on the big screen side of things. He signed this TV development deal with a company called Sonar Entertainment a couple days before Get Out uh, hit theaters. And this looks like the first uh, TV project to you know emerge from that deal. Um, David Wheel is the guy who is actually writing the series. Uh, Jordan Peele is the one who is basically just executive producing it and sort of, um, you know, he's working on it and developing it, overseeing it. His production company is producing it. Um, but David Wheel seems like the guy who is the real sort of brains behind this particular show. He's also executive producing and he is writing the script. Uh, if you don't recognize that name, I don't blame you. He hasn't really done much, but he has written a couple scripts that made The Blacklist, which is Hollywood's annual list of the best unproduced screenplays that come out every year. And in 2013 and 2014, he had movies make that list. So this seems like uh, the first big project from him. And um, yeah, the idea of, of uh, a show about, you know, set in the 70s of people hunting Nazis sounds uh, weirdly relevant right now. Um, and yeah. it's the the Hollywood Reporter was the one who reported this. And they mentioned in their piece that um, this TV show started to be pitched around town to different networks and stuff right after uh, what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia earlier this year. So um, when those torch carrying Nazi jackasses uh, sort of took over the news. So it seems like um, with, with their tiki torches. Yeah, it seems like these people. Um, yeah, basically made this show relevant again for uh, for at least the foreseeable future. It's so interesting. The the sharp turn that Jordan Peele has taken, you know, watching his show uh, Key and Peele, Key and Peele. I think that's the yes. Show. Yeah, yeah that's right. uh, I would have never thought that he would be making these kind of projects. Um, you know, obviously that shows what one film like Get Out can do for your career. Um, yeah, and there's some there's some uh, subversive stuff in Key and Peele, but yeah, it's it's um, surprising. You know, it, sometimes you you see a potential star in the making in a show like that and it doesn't necessarily translate into you know when that person sort of goes solo and and um expands their uh, horizons a little bit but it seems like Jordan Peele is doing very very well for himself for sure um a christmas story is coming back with a live adaptation they've cast Matthew Broderick uh what do we know yeah so he is going to be playing uh, old ralphie so um, that's the uh, the narrator. Yeah, right. The narrator of uh, the 1983 Christmas movie. Um, there was a Broadway musical that I have not seen, but I actually embedded a couple clips uh, in this piece at Slash Film that you can read if you want to see sort of how it might be different, because this is going to be a musical version. And the movie was not a musical, uh, as far as I remember. Right, Peter? Is that, is no, that correct? No, it was not a musical. And okay. this is in the line of, you know, that new trend of having live uh, almost like broad, uh, broad broadcasting, almost Broadway adaptations uh, on television, right? Like uh, mm -hmm. they've done it with um, like the Sound, Sound of, of Music, music. and yeah. yeah, I think um, like Peter Pan live. Christopher Walken was in that one. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so Maya Rudolph was previously cast. She's going to be taking. She's going to be playing uh, Ralphie's mother in the movie. Or, or the live show rather and um yeah matthew broderick is going to be playing uh the older version of ralphie and i guess in the movie it was just a narrator but in the broadway show it's like he is dressed in the same clothes as young ralphie and he's actually like out on the stage with him sort of narrating almost standing like right behind him 
narrating. So it seems like he's going to be a little bit more involved than, you know, just the idea of like, oh, Matthew Broderick is the narrator of this thing. It sort of, uh, you know, in my mind, at least conjures up images of him just like standing off stage somewhere, just reading stuff off of a piece of paper. But Broderick is a two time Tony Award winning you know, actor who's been in a bunch of Broadway stuff himself. So he's very capable, um, especially in a live sort of environment. So I think he's going to be a lot more involved in this than just, oh, he's the narrator that makes it sound. You mentioned that the original movie, A, a Christmas Story, uh, was based on stories by this guy named Gene Shepard, and he voiced the original narrator in the original movie. Yeah. Um, so uh, it'll be interesting to see what, it, what, what this version's like. It's a... I feel like this is a movie I used to love, love, love. And I used to, when 24 Hours of a Christmas Story would come on on, what is that, TBS or TNT? One of those two. Yeah, TBS, um, I think. Uh, I would have it on repeat on my television all Christmas Day. And um, I feel like now it's worn out. It's welcome. <laughs> I, I hesitate to even say this because I feel like I'll get hate mail or hate tweets sent my way. But I watched this movie one time and just didn't really get why it was a Christmas classic. And I've never seen it since then. And I I saw it when I was, I don't know, 14 or something like that. And I, was, I just never really got the idea. You know, I was like, this is the movie that gets a 24 hour airing every season. This is this is crazy well, to me. Well, let's also say that what is it? Jingle all the way also gets a twenty-four hour airing on another <laughs> oh, channel. So, um, I mean, it's no indication of quality, but I feel like a Christmas story perfectly captures uh, Chris the Christmas as a family holiday in Americana, or at least my childhood. Um, maybe nowadays, I'm not sure if millennials would relate as much to a lot of it. I mean, there's a lot that I can't relate to, like you know, decoder rings and listening to the radio and, and whatnot. <laughs> but um, they, they also made a Christmas story, too. I'm not sure if you know this, but in no, 2012, uh, many years after the first one, they made this, I think it was like direct to, to video. And uh, Daniel Stern played the father. I've oh, never no. seen it. I've heard it's horrible. Um, <laughs> let's see right now on IMDb, which is not a good indication of quality, but Usually, you have to do really bad to get a rating on IMDb that's under 6.5. Yeah. On IMDb, Christmas Story 2, 3.3 out of 10. Ooh, ouch. So, so yes. Uh, so, if you if you want some torture this holiday season, maybe a Christmas Story 2. Uh, but I'm looking forward to the live version. Let's go from there to the mailbag. Uh, Peter from Gainesville, Virginia writes in, very much enjoying the daily podcast. I listened to it during my hour-long commute. A few questions have been the focus on the movie blogging world recently, like how to get into movie blogging, the press screening experience, etc. So I thought I'd add one more. You always hear about the many set visits you guys attend and was curious how that works, meaning how do the studios set them up? Does the cost come out of your pocket? Uh, do studios pay for it? Do you get to interview the cast one-on-one? Or is it a press pool uh, type of thing with the questions are thrown out? Uh, okay, so yeah, let's use this as an excuse to talk to give another glimpse behind the scenes at the not unglamorous world of movie blogging. Um, <laughs> I think set visits sound a lot more exciting than they are. Not to put them down. Uh, but it sounds like, oh, we're flying to London uh, to go to some set and, you know, whatnot. 
but you, you you have to understand, you know, we get we fly to London, we get in there, you know, it's a time difference. Uh, you you know, you're tired. You usually take a nap. You get up for like maybe a dinner. You go to sleep. The next morning, you're you you need, you need to leave London at like six or seven a.m. to get to Pinewood Studios or wherever they're having the set visit. You're at Pinewood all day, uh, you know, doing your thing, and then. When you get out of that, you maybe go back to the hotel, grab dinner and drinks, and the next morning you got to be back up at five a.m. to take the flight out of there. So it's not like it's not like we get this, you know, expenses paid trip to London to explore and have fun. Right. Um, yeah, I think that's probably a big misconception because um, these things really are like you get in and you get out kind of thing. They're they're uh, very um, efficient when it comes to that stuff. The the experiences themselves, like on the actual set, however, that is not always uh, as efficiently run. And it's, a, it's no fault of the people who put together these press screenings or I'm sorry, press visits. It's all about like um, – uh, well, you, what you, is happening you, on the set that day? Yeah, you're visiting a working production, and it's not about you. You know yeah, that yeah. that working production's you know hundreds of millions of dollars most times, and you know when they have time to come do interviews or show you something, that's when they do it. You are there visiting <laughs> that production. Yes, for uh, sure. Um, but we should say um, studios usually you know arrange these set visits. And uh, typically, you know, like someone like Entertainment Weekly will get their own day on set, you know, by themselves and do these one on one interviews and get all this exclusive content that they get to release, you know, months before we get to talk about our set visits. Uh, But when we go to set, um, it's usually they fly out maybe a dozen sites um, and some of them the studio is paying for the airplane and for the hotel uh others like i know um some outlets do not allow that uh in full um transparency they don't want to to have anything paid for by the studio so they will pay their own way and um in lodging uh we don't have the luxury of that we don't (laughs) have enough money to fly ourselves to london and put ourselves up in london um so, uh, I mean, usually the way we go about it is the person that goes to the set visit usually isn't the person that reviews the movie. Yeah. Um, so there's usually a uh, clear cut there. But, it's uh, again, it's not like, you know, oh, here's this wine. You're going to be wine and dine trip to London or, you know, wherever. Australia. Let me <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Okay. So let's let's talk about what the set visit is. How about you explain yeah, so when you get there, it's you're basically like sort of corralled into a certain area, be it like a, a room, like a production office that's sort of on site or, um, you know, just sort of off to the side. And you have to sign all this paperwork saying that you're not going to talk about anything that you've seen until they want you to talk about it. And then, um, yeah, they just sort of like parade people through and maybe you'll get to talk to one or two of the stars of the movie. Um, a lot of times you're talking to sort of below the line people, you know, like production designers and like 
um, concept artists and and uh, visual effects supervisors and stuff like that who are all also like really interesting people who have a lot of cool things to say but it's not quite as like sexy as you know sitting there talking to like an a-list star or whatever but you can get some good stuff from those types of people and then well uh, it's actually interesting because a lot of these stars are briefed before they come talk to us they're like you know don't talk about the third act don't talk about this don't mention yeah. this plot point so when they come in especially for like these marvel set visits and stuff uh they end up telling us or be being afraid to tell us yeah. anything yeah, even definitely. though we're going to be embargoed till like you know the second trailer comes out or something <laughs> and uh everything we, we we get from them has already been revealed in the trailer but um what's interesting is sometimes talking to those po- those prop people or the costume people or the you know set designers you can get the most interesting information because uh they don't know what not to say <laughs> so, right yeah yeah they can sort of slip up and, and give you something that uh yeah that the other people maybe have been briefed specifically not to mention yeah. but I, I remember um, when when brad was on the set of uh captain america civil war um you know it was a big secret that spider-man was in the movie and uh you know everybody on set they asked about spider-man because there was rumors and no one was willing to say anything. Everybody was like denying it. And then they got to the, uh, I think costume department, the costume, they asked, you know, what was the hardest costume to design? And the, the lady was like, Oh, it's Spider-Man for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, had ruined, uh, their whole plan of keeping it secret. Uh, <laughs> but in the end, that stuff is, it runs months and months after the trailer that reveals Spider-Man right runs so it, it, it i don't know what the what the problem is there but okay yeah. i'll let you continue well yeah and i was just gonna say the other thing too is like sometimes you'll get to go and see um either a scene being filmed like i went and saw i went to the set of the carry remake from 2013 like way back in the day and uh i saw the scene where you know they dumped the pig's blood on her head at the prom so they were like filming that moment and they you know a lot of times they'll do that if they can they'll have the press show up for uh, a moment that's like supposed to be iconic in the film um and that happens more often than not for you know like remakes and stuff where you already know what those iconic moments are going to be and they don't really have to worry about hiding them from you ahead of time Um, and and, and sometimes you think those moments are going to be iconic i remember being on the set of terminator salvation and we got to see the scene where where christian bale john connor gets the scar on his you know uh, blow his eye the iconic scar uh, that john connor has Mm -hmm. we're like oh my god we're seeing this iconic moment you know it ends up being not so great uh (laughs) but uh, other times you know you go to a set of like say a movie like the avengers one of the avengers films these guys aren't all on set together uh usually it's only a a handful of days that that entire team is actually on set at the same time so they're usually fine because they want us to get interviews with all these guys they're having us come in during you know one of those days and Generally, it's not like one of these exciting, you know, they're shooting an action scene day. Generally, it's them like, you know, sitting around talking, you know, like one of those kind of scenes, mm-hmm. uh, which isn't bad. I mean, you get if you get Robert Downey Jr. talking, uh, you know, you've won. But yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's not always those iconic scenes. 
And then sometimes they'll take you to uh, like a big set or something like that, you know, on a soundstage, uh, like in the Carrie set in Toronto, you got to sort of walk through Carrie's house and then walked through the set where her school was and like this big uh, recreation of the gym and all this stuff. So they sort of talk you through all of these things and you can see like the, you know, it's really cool for people who haven't been on actual sets before which i feel like is probably a good amount of the movie bloggers out there but you know like i worked at paramount for a while giving tours the lot and stuff so i've been around um film sets before and i've worked on you know movies and tv shows and stuff like that so uh it was it's not really a new thing to me but if you don't have that um sort of baseline knowledge of like oh this is physically how this stuff is done on a working set um it can be uh, very beneficial to writing about that, you know, about those things later on. You know, it adds to your understanding of how the sausage is made and how this stuff is actually put together. And it can really change your opinion of uh, an entire movie, really, or just like specific aspects of it, too. I, I think even for people that think they know how movies are made, seeing how many people are involved in a shot and how many people are working to make that one thing happen is insane um yeah you know before i wanted to write about movies for a living i wanted to make movies and for me being on these sets or is the you know the closest i'm getting to uh, being part of the movie making process and seeing um seeing how the sausage is made and, and being like you know i i think it's a it's a thrill for me at least walking through and being on set for like a day or two because you know you're not these people working these you know uh 15 hour days or whatever you know you just you go in and you get you get out you get to see the cool stuff um but uh it's interesting because you don't get to like you know you talk to the people in between takes uh even though there is a long time in between takes you know there's work to be done there's Mm -hmm. directors giving notes to actors and stuff you usually don't get to talk to the, the director that much um you know, I've been on the set of I think uh, all three Planet of the Apes movies uh, or this trilogy, and I don't think I spoke to the director on set at all <laughs> during either any of those visits. Wow! Um, so that happens, um, but uh, it's a fun experience, and you know, it helps. I think the strongest thing is for a lot of these sites send people to set that are feature writers or just freelancers. Um, that are just writing that set visit report for them. Um, Slash film is different than a lot of sites because we send the people that are working on the everyday news to the set. And not that we can talk about anything we've seen. We sign an NDA, but it helps inform uh, our knowledge of that project. So when, you know, rumors come up that are complete, completely bogus, we know not to cover it. Mm -hmm. Uh, When, you know, something comes up, you know, facts are, you know, it just helps inform. Not that, like, we ever write anything that we've learned from the set in yeah, something yeah. previously. But just, it, yeah, contextualizing yeah. that stuff is, like, super important for people on, like us who are on the news beat every day. Like, you know, reading all the stuff that comes out. And especially for, like, these big projects. There are rumors every single day. And you have to know what's worth, what's worth it and what's not. So being on the set and actually you know, hearing from the people who are actually physically making the movie is, uh, is super beneficial in that regard. Um, you know, there's a lot of filmmakers that won't have 
press or at least movie bloggers on their sets. I, you know, I've never been to a Steven Spielberg movie. I would love to go, uh, or, you know, at least see filming. Um, and, uh, you know, Star Wars, <laughs> they, they have not done any Star Wars set visits. And now that JJ's back, that's gonna be something that's gonna be here to stay because yeah. he, he likes that mystery box closed. Uh, one more thing, I'm just looking back at, at the question from Peter from Gainesville, and he one of the things he was asking was, do you get to interview the cast one on one? So generally, it's like you're in a group. I think the one on one stuff typically happens maybe closer to the film's release, you know, for the press junkets and stuff like that. But when you're actually on the set, because uh, you have, you know, the studio has like whatever, 15 people to sort of corral and they're not going to let you wander off on your own when you're on the set because they don't want you to see things that you might, uh, that they might not want you to see at that particular moment. So they definitely keep everybody, uh, they keep a close eye on you and, and sort of keep you all locked together in the same group. Um, so yeah, it's basically just like you sort of, um, it's what they call in our world round table interviews where we sit around a table, the person comes in and, it's kind of a free for all where you have to fight to get to, get to ask your question. Right. And, and the uh, interviews are generally like 10 minutes long or something. So it's, it really like that might sound like a long time, but when you're sitting there trying to get a question out and then somebody beats you to the punch and then you have to wait on not only that question, but then that answer time is ticking away so fast. So, uh, yeah, you don't really get that much time with the actual talent, um, in, in those sorts of settings, but that's the good part about the junkets later on is you can sort of follow up on stuff that you might not have been able to uh to ask on the actual set yeah um one thing i've noticed i've been doing these set visits for a a while now probably a decade now and one thing i've noticed is that they are becoming more uniform they're coming becoming more like junkets where they're more planned and orchestrated and you know here's what we're going to tell them here's what we're going to show them here's what they're going to see here's what you know, the actors can and can't say, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And before it used to be kind of like more of, you know, you go to set and you, you know, you're an investigative journalist trying to, you know, piece together things. And now it's kind of like, Oh no, you're not going to learn that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it, it, it's interesting. Um, it's also interesting that now movie studios are trying to, you know, I don't know the logic behind it, but uh, studios, it seems like they want to spike social traffic, which means, you know, releasing a lot of stuff at the same time so that a movie is trending on Twitter and, and Facebook. Mm-hmm. And to do that, they'll release the set visit. They'll have us the embargo for the set visit go off at the same time as the release of like the second trailer or the first trailer so that, you know, they'll get a lot of sites writing about this movie at the same time. Mm-hmm. Because we're all obviously fighting to get that information out first, um, even though we have the same information. Uh, <laughs> and um, it's kind of unfortunate because a lot of the times our information would have been interesting to readers, you know, a few months before, but not right. on the same day as the trailer released. And the biggest example I want to give you this is um, I was on the set of Transformers 3, which was the one with the Dinobots, if you even remember that but at the end you know there was optimus wait, prime wait wait a second i think that's transformers four uh oh four I... four okay <laughs> is it th- wait yes you're right four. three three ends with like the uh the wing suited guys in chicago and i yeah. think four is the one with the dino you're, you're correct the one with mark Wahlberg for or yeah, the first one yeah. with mark Wahlberg four uh and um <laughs> and uh we're on set, and there was rumors of Dinobots, so we're asking everybody on set. You know, the producer is telling us, you know, 
oh, there's no Dinobots. And, you know, all these people were answering this question, like, and we were kind of baffled because this set visit runs a month before the movie comes out. You know, you're driving around L.A. and there's billboards everywhere with Optimus Prime riding a T-Rex Dinobot everywhere. <laughs> and we're running the set visit report with, with the producer being like, no, there's no Dinobots in the movie. That's a little bit of a slap to the face. I yeah. Think. I mean, I get it. When they're on set, they, they planned on that being a surprise for fans. But then the marketing company comes in and is like, no, we got to get people in those seats. You know, we got to show. I mean, that's a, that, that's a good poster. Optimus Prime yeah, I guess that's I guess that's what it is. They're just playing it safe because they don't fully know what the marketing campaign is going to look like yet. But like some of that stuff, like and you know, like the Spider-Man thing is a good example. Like you know that you're going to tease Spider-Man at some point because that's just too big for a studio to have the restraint to leave that kind of thing as an in-movie discovery for people. So you know, there are some like Dinobots, like, you know, that's going to be on the poster. Come on, guys, like help them out a little bit. I, I don't think they know. Uh, so is there anything else we should add about um, set visits? Um, uh, no, I think I think we covered most of it. Yeah, um, I, I, I can say for me personally, the 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 better set visits I've been on have been the more intimate where they've invited less people uh mm-hmm. you know i i went to the set of the wolverine the james mangold film not the one that everybody loves but the one right before that <laughs> and uh that was shot in australia and i was on set with just a couple of people and uh you know when it's not this kind of big orchestrated group you get a, a lot more information and a lot more time to dig in um i was lucky to, to go to the set of jurassic world with just you know three other people and uh, really exploring a, a big film like that uh, with without the the barriers you normally have is is exciting. And obviously, when you've written your report and there's only you know two other sites running that interview, uh, people actually read your coverage. Yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, yes. So what is the coolest probably set visit you've done thus far? Uh, well. The, it's the one that I can't talk about yet, but I'll talk oh, about that okay. as soon as I'm available, as soon as I'm allowed and, and sort of uh, legally <laughs> been released from my shackles to talk about it. I'll come back on the podcast and tell you all about it. You know, another thing that's interesting is now that we're now that there's these cinematic universes and not to extend this, but now that there's cinematic universes like Marvel's doing and, you know, obviously the Dark Universe and Star Wars. It's interesting, you know, not a lot of those companies do set visits, but Marvel does. And now that these movies are becoming more and more connected, it's harder to have press on set and answer questions when, you know, they're making like right now they're making Ant-Man and the Wasp, I think, is in production. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the time that comes out, Infinity War would have come out um you know, so I'm sure that in some way must lead into that movie. But whoever is on set of a film like that, you know, it, be- it becomes a harder thing to navigate. Yeah, for um, sure. And I'm saying this theoretically. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I think that's all I, I, I have to say on this matter. Uh, hopefully that look behind the scenes uh, in the movie blogging world has uh, has helped you out some. Oh, I will also want to say this. You know, I got to the chance to go to the set of the last Harry Potter movie, and it was amazing. Walking through Hogwarts is incredible. But I'll tell you, 
you know, you walk through a section of that castle and, you know, just around the corner it ends. You know, it's like a typical movie set. And I know that's probably not surprising to you, but I would honestly tell you that if you get to go to like get the chance to go to like the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, uh, it's a more complete experience. Because you turn the corner and there is the dining hall, or there is, do you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it doesn't end. Um, and in in Hollywood, it's all about that illusion of creating just that one piece and filling it in with CG or or whatnot. Yeah, it's yeah, that's exactly how I felt going to New Zealand and being on the Hobbiton set too. It's like there's yeah, you turn around and like it really is Hobbiton there, and there's no um, facades or anything like that that sort of uh, break the illusion. It's like you're actually there in the real place. So yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. Okay, if you have any questions for the mailbag, send them to peter at slashfilm.com. Please mention your name and general geographic location in case we mention it on the air. You can find more of me at slashfilm.com and at slashfilm on Twitter. You can find Ben at Ben Pears on Twitter and, of course, slashfilm. You can read all these articles that we mentioned today on slashfilm.com. You can subscribe to this podcast, which is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps, and, uh, you know, please feel free to give us a review and rate the podcast on iTunes. That helps us out uh, quite a bit. Spread the word, tell your friends, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow.